Hey everybody, welcome to The Blacklist, the show where we interview the elite, and today we have a special treat. Right now, um, on my right-hand side, we have Tony UV, founder of Versprite, and we're going to dive into a lot of things today, especially hacking and a lot of stuff that he's you know, really, really big on. So Tony, I appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure, Ulysses. Great to be here. Thank you, dude. So you know, for people that don't know you, because I know you pretty well, um, you know, give yourself a brief introduction, what you do, um, and kind of like what your company does. Sure. I'm the founder of Versprite. Versprite is a cybersecurity firm out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I myself have been in IT information security for about 25 plus years. Yeah. Um, Cornell graduate. I wrote a book in uh, 2015 on something that I'm really passionate about called application threat modeling, which is within the space of cybersecurity and information security. Um, I uh, run a uh, chapter in Atlanta called OWASP. It's an open web application security project. And I'm the founder of two other companies. One's a cloud security posture management tool called Alter Cloud. And I'm also um, a uh, owner of a staffing um, uh, organization that's called VS Staffing. That actually yep. got birth within uh, Versprite. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. And so f- out of all of the, you know, um, kind of industries that you could have joined, why specifically that one? Is it just something you were always kind of into? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in Cornell, I actually worked at the computer lab. And this was around the time of the dot-com era. Yeah. So four years there working at a computer lab, I majored in international finance, but I had that bug. Right. Yep. So when I got out in 1998, I was uh, briefly did a stint in uh, management consulting and then went into uh, information systems engineering. I got an opportunity with Morgan Stanley a long time ago. And then from there, segued into information security. Yeah. Uh, uh, but why, uh, you know, why kind of dive deeper into information security? Because I do think that is, uh, I mean, I definitely don't think it's something that's known, right? Like right. if I was to think of somebody off the top of my head, it just, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Right. So Absolutely. why that industry? Well, it's, it's, um, it's an industry that's always evolving. You know, it's always changing. Yeah. You have different types of attacks, different types of, uh, you know, um, yeah, issues and te- te- uh, evolving technologies that you have to keep up with. So it always keeps you humble and hungry at the same time. Yeah. So in it, for that reason, you know, different from IT, which back then in the dot-com era wasn't evolving as fast. Like in 1998, it was exploding and there was a lot of things really to take hold in terms of, you know, back-end development, front-end development, traditional architectures and things like that. But cybersecurity, information security, um, it was trying to find out, like, who done it. You know, right. trying to understand, you know, fraud, uh, trying to understand cybercrime. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's kind of a little bit of uh, playing detective at the same time, leveraging a lot of that uh, technology background in order to be able to, um, you know, dig deeper. Also being able to influence how applications can become more secure. For me, I found that fascinating. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's. I'm not assuming it's evolved so much from, you know, when you first started to now, yes. what are the major key differences? And you probably, you know, because it evolves so quickly, I feel like the internet is a fast changing thing. Right. Um, you really have to be on your toes to make, you know, to, I think at least be, you know, part of the discussion. I feel like it's gone right? into hyperdrive. I mean, absolutely. Cybercrime and the threats out there have gone into hyperdrive because of the, you know, you have now a computer in your hands yep. right? and you have applications and you have different types of, information exchanges and attack vectors and um, the, the human aspects, information manipulation. I mean, there's just so many different things that you can um, cut up and slice up that you have to address in terms of cybersecurity, data security. Yeah. Uh, but uh, overall, that's what really keeps me you know, hungry, right? I want to be able to always be a consummate professional, always be a student. Yep, yep. And I think that, you know, going back to just simply, you know, being an entrepreneur, that's always exciting. I don't want to feel like I'm at the top. Yeah. I want to feel like I'm still growing and challenging myself and the people that are around me. So that's what I'm after. Yeah. Consistently innovating and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and how does it look like year per year? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I, yeah, we can see from where it started to where it is now. Um, but you see the micro changes, I think, that happen Absolutely, um, yeah. on a day-to-day basis. Yep. Um, how, do, how do you prepare your team to kind of, because, yeah, I, I totally hear you stay hungry and you want to be innovative and stuff, but put it in a pra- like practical way, mm-hmm. how does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, I mean, just from a macro level, yeah. what we're talking about in terms of threats has changed. We remember, I don't know if you heard of the talk of like viruses and worms back right. in the day. Yep. They were a lot more prevalent. Now you have things like malware and yep. ransomware, and then you have things like social engineering. So there's human hacking, and there's different reasons to going into hacking. Yeah. You have nation states you know, dipping into this because of, you know, um, you know, interest on behalf of the uh, the country and uh, national interest and things like that. So, 
the geopolitical climate that we're at today, right now, is actually very right for a lot of different types of cyber warfare, cyber crime, data yeah. espionage, psychops, right? That is all leaking into the tech space. Um, so, you know, keeping up with it, uh, it's a matter of about you know, having really dependable information sources, networks, and contacts. That's uh, important. Yep. Also, being able to understand, we have a saying at Versprite to be able to um, emulate the criminal. Right, you have to have a kind of a criminal mindset, cr criminology understanding about why would someone want to abuse a network, a mobile application, you know, an API, that's, you know, yeah. things like that. No, that's good. So you're not just looking for the vulnerability; you're looking why somebody would want to attack the vulnerability in the first place. Is that right? Absolutely, because if we're just looking for the vulnerability, then then we're just always being reactive. Yeah, right. Instead of proactive. Yeah. That's so we have to be very proactive and think like, okay, how would we actually attack? You know, given you know, physical infrastructure or uh, network service or application and things like that. So it's super important for us to think like a criminal, to be able to um, evolve some of the attack patterns, stay up to date with how uh, cyber criminals are attacking anything from a crypto wallet, you know, in cold storage to a uh, mobile application or a, uh, you know, a fintech payment application or a healthcare application. So there, there's so many different protocols and information um uh, formats and frameworks for, for for exchanging data, and then obviously the advent of the cloud many many years ago has added some additional complexity of moving forklifting a lot of traditional IT that was like in a centralized environment. Yeah, now it's up in the cloud. You know, within some of these major players that are out there, like Amazon, Google, AWS, Microsoft, right? Yep. So, yep. Um, an evolving landscape for sure. Yeah, and so for your ideal avatar, your ideal client, what are they hiring you for? Because I'm pretty sure it's like on retainer and you guys are constantly, uh, what does that look like? So when I started Versprite, I wanted to come up with kind of like a dual persona of the company. Yeah. And that was kind of like the suit, right, meets the black hat. Yeah. So someone that is uh, very nefarious in thought, um, kind of like, you know, just in the weeds, technically understanding protocols, looking at RFC specs, you know, for different frameworks. But at the same time, understanding the business impact for a hack. Right, so there's a, there's a lot of smart people. When I was uh, working for a Fortune 50 right before I started Versprite, I basically saw that in the marketplace it was really uh, smart auditors that just understood the rationale for the business to align to a security, let's say, framework. Yeah. But they didn't really get down and dirty into you know hacking and exploitation and understanding some of the, the psychological aspects of hacking and things like that. On the flip side, you had a lot of great hackers that didn't really do a good job of articulating the business impact and the business rationale of like, okay, fine, you hacked my, you hacked my box, you hacked like my, um, my application, like why should I care? You know, you have to be able to kind of walk them through to say like, beyond the exploit, what does this mean to the, in terms of the information I compromise? Why do I care about this information? Yeah. How does this information actually make me money or prevent me from making more money? Right, right, right. Got to connect those dots and that's really the spirit of, of uh, what, embodies Versprite. Okay. And on a month-to-month -month basis, what does the deliverables look like when you're like, you know, with a client? Sure. Is it, is it, is it evolving? Like how you just kind of mentioned, you know, you're like, like finding these vulnerabilities, seeing why people would attack them and all of that information. Is that how it looks like? On a so, I mean, the roster of what we do, I mean, we have about 30 or 40 SKUs that we can do for clients, but most, mostly clients are definitely looking for us to break into their physical presence, right? Their physical, um, you know, corporate presence or, you know, break into an application. And so they're hiring you yes. to hack them? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then now on the flip side, many of the organizations, <laughs> you know, come to us and they, they just want to be able to, you know, handle some of the regulations that are after them, right? Yeah. If you're in healthcare and fintech, data privacy, I mean, there's, you know, GDPR in Europe has come and really affected a lot of U.S. companies. It's inspired California to have the California, its own privacy law called CCPA, and um, so regulations are forcing businesses to be able to uh, respond and make sure they have security and privacy right. Yeah. So companies come to us for that assistance and help. So it looks a little bit different. Sometimes we are asked to be able to, you know, hack into an application, hack into a mobile app, uh, try to, you know, um, exemplify how financial fraud could happen, yeah. how uh, sensitive data can be compromised, intellectual property could be compromised. But at the same time, we're also trying to do really interesting things in this um, M&A world that we're living in. There's a lot of consolidation in the industry. Yeah. So companies can come to us and say, hey, we, we're kicking the, we want to kick the tires on this company that we're buying. 
and they happen to have dev outfits in all parts of the Balkan region. There might be different alliances, you know, for uh, for nation states. Okay. And so you've got to look and examine the code and see if there's like, you know, um, any level of uh, abusive patterns that might have been factored into the code or into the infrastructure. Yeah. And so we work with a lot of global companies on, on, on that. That's so crazy to me. Um, so, you know, from your team, when you're hired to, because that to me, that's very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. When you're hired to essentially hack into somebody's system, what do you, what is the first thing you guys look for? What's the main vulnerability that most people end up having? I think the easiest vulnerability to exploit is business logic vulnerabilities because, as you can imagine, you know, there's actually software out there to identify what's wrong with software, right? So you, let's say that you write a piece of software for uh, a healthcare organization or an insurance company. Well, there's tools out there to help you find out what's vulnerable or what's weak. Yeah. But, you know, they're uh, revolving around kind of like some patterns. You know, it's, it's basically pattern recognition. But when you're a hacker, you're just kind of poking around. You know, you're kind of... Um, you know, I, I kind of make the example of like when you're trying to do, you know, uh, breaking an entry. What, what do most, you know, physical criminals do? They they uh, they case the place, right? They scope the place. They look at entrances, exits, and they look at patterns. So understanding how the application works, information flows, some of the privileged model. Oh, I have the ability to do this. Yeah. Well, what can I do with this, right? You know, really the, the, the kind of the favorite go-to for the experienced cyber criminal, I would, I would say – that you're not going to catch typically with like a tool is manipulating business logic. And what does that mean? So you might like, let's take, um, you know, a cryptocurrency application where you're, you know, um, building in uh, writing smart contracts and, you know, you're trying to do uh, bridging financial transactions between one platform to the other. Um, A business logic manipulation is maybe how you're, you know, doing the simple math, right? How you're doing the transaction, how you're, you know, you could uh, manipulate, um, you know, maybe how the uh, overall transaction math is being done. Uh, a classic case that was always exemplified of business logic manipulation was back in the 90s dot-com era where e-commerce just blew up was the abuse of coupon codes, right? Oftentimes, like, a retailer would have a coupon code and they would, you know, have a very poor way of dynamically creating, you know, EC257 or something. And there was a way that you could just enumerate or guess, right? So they didn't really think about how maybe a, a criminal would just try to, you know, guess additional coupon codes and try it like a zillion times. And you can easily programmatically write a routine to do that for you. So that's where financial fraud could come in, and it's uh, back then it was a lot harder to detect. You know, obviously today that's something like that. It's very trivial. Yeah. But you know, it's about you know using the logic of how the application was designed almost against itself. Yeah, that is so insane. How how do you make sure you vet your team? Um, because what I'm thinking is that's a lot of power to give to somebody, right? Where mm-hmm. people know exactly to find exits, entries to, you know, kind of manipulate the system or, you know, use it against itself. Right. How do you make sure that, you know, your team is, uh, you know, ethical under, you know, because to, to, it's a lot of power. Yeah, it's definitely got to be high integrity, right? And you got to make sure that, um, you know, that there's a, there's a, they're all behind the mission. Yeah. And the mission of Versprite, you know, Versprite stands for true spirit. It's meant to be like true spirited cybersecurity consulting, not cookie cutter. So, we're passionate about breaking into things, exemplifying how security flaws actually cost businesses a lot of money. Yeah. So the first step is to really find individuals that can espouse that mission. If they're not about it, then they're not for us. Yeah. Right. And so there's a there's a lot of um, you know, the space of cybersecurity consulting is kind of clouded. And right, right, there's right. a lot in that space. Some of them want to get into it, you know, just to make money. You know, that's as, true. Yeah. But um, you know, really it's uh beyond just simply looking at, you know, things like their ability to be able to show that they can program or that they can think on their own. Um, it's very much a psychological and a network-based uh, reference. Well, we might want to understand more about the person, right, to understand what is their um, pyramid of priorities in life. Yep. Um, if we see that they have a passion to learn, to break into things, to kind of define and discover and to share that knowledge, right, when you're passionate about something, you want to share it. So we look for that, and that is a Versprite, you know, employee, someone Got that's it. super passionate, um, but also has high integrity. And you can kind of tell 
you know, uh, high integrity related actions by how they conduct themselves in meetings, timeliness, professionalism, the way that they analyze, the way that they treat the customers, the, the, the way that they try to understand, right, the business rationale for how the product exists. Yeah. And then relate their analysis of the security model that might be insecure related back to what the, what the client cares about. Yeah. Because if I'm only going to tell you what I care about as a hacker, then that's kind of egotistical, right? Yeah. I'm just kind of showing off. But if I'm trying to speak in the context of like, well, I want to say this in the context of how it's preventing you from making more money, right? Yeah. That's important. Yeah. What I'm noticing in this interview is um, your business is very technical, but the way you do business is very psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the technical things, yes, they matter, but the way that you do them, the way that you kind of get into the criminal mind, the way that you do all that type of stuff is very psychological. You're looking at human behavior and you do the same thing when you're trying to catch criminals when you're trying to attract talent. Is that, is that true? Because Absolutely. you're also seeing their physical interactions, how they are as a human being, because that's going to ultimately determine if they're, you know, somebody that's ethical or not. Right. So that to me is shocking because again, in a very technical space, you are uh, a psychologist major almost, you know, uh, it's crazy. So that's good. Good to hear. Um, and another thing that I wanted to, to talk about. So, most people, I think, when they're listening to this, uh, to this interview, they're probably not going to know. A lot of this stuff might go over their head, right, um, because they're just not in this space directly. But I think what's going to stand out to them is the fact that they need something like this. I think this, is, this gets overlooked um, because, uh, to give you an example, I think when a lot of business owners start out, um, they forget that they have to do taxes or mm-hmm. they don't do it correctly. And then they figure out, like, oh, shit, that's going to bite me in the ass. Right. I think this is something similar, right, where they don't think they necessarily need it. When do companies realize this is an issue? Well, I think, you know, first off, people looking at this, you know, has to understand that cybersecurity isn't really a, just a niche and for someone else to handle, whether they're, you know, representing a company or just simply paying the bills online, you know, to a bank. Um, cybersecurity affects their daily life and their lives literally could be ruined, yep. right? Their reputation could be ruined. There's, you know, doxing types of attacks, which are meant to undermine the uh, credibility of a celebrity or a politician, um, you know, perpetration, um, defamation. There's all, all these ty- different types of things that affect different types of individuals. You know, but even if you're just simply you know, an average Joe or Jane and you're paying your bills, right, you still have credentials that have access to your bank account. You still you know, have, could be duped into uh, putting your credit card down. Um, or maybe even opening up your 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 uh, your cold wallet right to uh, a nefarious hacker. So there's a lot of different you know threat campaigns that are happening out there. And the point is is that um, cybersecurity affects everybody. Um, so let me just say one, one one thing that's super important. It's that you know the the hot currency today isn't the dollar, isn't Bitcoin, isn't Ethereum. It's your information. Yep. That that's that's the hottest you know currency right now. And Companies today, governments today, are monetizing your information. Your information, my information, they're monetizing it, right? Digital advertising, you know, the more that they know about you, the more speared uh, advertising they can do um, in terms of uh, criminal intent or government, you know, services even. Um, Obviously, there's some concern about how much does the government know about my whereabouts, my health data, um, what, what I do in my personal life, my likes, dislikes, my associations, my views politically, yep, right? Yep. So our data is really the object of the cyber warfare. And we sometimes think in our minds, well, the hacker is the, you know, the person with uh, the hoodie, you know, in some sort of like uh, nefarious underground, you know, broken down building, yeah. just breaking into to accounts and things like that. But, you know, the our information is under attack by even corporations that we entrusted to. You know, if you think about a lot of the the breaches that have happened with major organizations, some of them Fortune 50 organizations, they get hit with a $50 million fine. That's like 0.05% of their earnings before interest, tax depreciation, and amortization, right? Yeah. It's like nothing. Yeah. You know, so they're just going to basically just like shrug it off. So it's important to be able to to take a little bit more of um, you know personal pride and uh, responsibility for your digital footprint. If you're, if you're a teenager, a young adult, you know, highly recommend maybe coming up with um, you know puppet accounts right out there. Um, understand where you need to put out real information of yourself 
and where do you need to create like puppet accounts so that you can get the services that you need without compromising a lot of who you are and your persona. Yeah. The longer that you can navigate, you know, uh, with some level of anonymity, then the, the better it will be overall for you to preserve the information that is largely going to use for your own reputation and potentially your own wealth. Yeah. So it's super important. It hits everybody. Two, two things that uh, you said that I really wanted to cover. So you said, you know, companies get hit with a fine, right? Like the company themselves are liable if their information is leaked. Is that correct? Yep. Um, so, you know, although for big corporations, that's like a slap on the wrist to them. Uh, for other people, it can be very detrimental, right? right. Um, so how would a small business owner, let's say anywhere from like, you know, 10 to 50 employees, um, how would they best protect themselves from uh, liabilities like that? Yeah, I, I think it, it comes with some simple security hygiene. You know, the, the thing that is the gateway to any access, you know, from our phones to our, you know, cloud data storage, our email accounts is passwords. Passwords are evil, yeah. right? You got to remember them and typically they're not constructed. So having a good mechanism and method to safeguard passwords, manage those passwords, ensuring multi-factor authentication, don't not using text messages as an extra level of authentication, although a lot of banks really? still today use that but using instead like a you know multi-factor authentication like google authenticator yep, yep. or microsoft's authenticator authy and things like that but um it that's just the beginning that's just you know the baby steps because because can't people still i mean i think sim swapping right now is something yes. that's you know pretty pretty uh i wouldn't say a trend but it's you know it's happened to a lot of people that i know right. where you know they'll sim swap and they'll get access to literally everything because right. the passwords that they do have access to, they're sending the mul the two factor authentic authentication to their phone, right? And then you know it's like over for them. So, yeah. um, so you're saying switch off of that and go to something like Authy, where it's basically um, is that like cloud based or how, how does that work? Yeah, these MFA or multi factor authentications are basically providing what's called a token. So dynamically, they're creating a new token like every couple of seconds. Right. And you put it in as a second form of authentication to your provider. It could be your email provider. It could be your, you know, internet provider. If you're trying to look at Paramount or HBO or whatever, right? A lot of these online forums, Netflix or whatever, they might have a, a multi-factor authentication option that either you have to enable. Yep, um, yep. So you have to go in and enable that. And this just prevents, you know, you having peace of mind, right? Yeah. That your stuff is your stuff. Yeah. So that's super important. But, you know, you also have to, you know, um, the other key recommendation, if I were just to make two, so I talked about authentication and multi-factor authentication, but is context, right? To be able to, if I, you know, call you a week after this and I say, hey, you know, uh, Ulysses, great uh, chatting up with you in Vegas. Um, you know, being, in, but I, I mentioned something that's kind of off, right? I mentioned something that's like, hey, you know, you were going to send me that um, authorization form for, um you know, uh, me being able to, uh, you know, contribute, make a donation to your, uh, to, to, to your, uh, to, to whatever cause, you know, through, uh, you know, cryptocurrency exchange. Um, context is about like, as a human to be able to say, wait, does this jive with something that actually really happened? Like, is this really Tony? Yeah. So when we get emails or when we get like a Slack message or a chat message or even an SMS, we have to be able to use context. Right now, there's a lot of campaigns out on SMS that says, hey, long time no speak, and it's coming from a number that maybe that's not on your contact list, right? But because we're so, as humans, we're so designed for like, well, I, I recently did get a new phone, and I, you know, this could be that long-lost friend that I forgot about. Let me just go ahead and, and respond. It's like, wait, who is this, right? And when you're doing social engineering, you basically are looking for that hook, once yeah. you get that thread of the back and forth and you establish some level of credibility because maybe you ha they have background information on you, right? then they're hooking you into a rapport. And once they have the rapport, they'll build from there, you know, and it could be a long play or it could be a short play. Yeah. That's, yeah. Because I, 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 I recognize that where with like phishing emails or like, you know, SMS text, text messages or when, you know, a friend will send you a link and you're like, is this you or something like that, right? And a lot of people fall for it. Yeah. A lot of people fall for it. Right. And I'm like, to me, I don't know, maybe I've just, I'm, I'm not in this space, but I feel like that's just kind of common sense. Like, you know, uh, a buddy that I haven't spoken to is not going to send me a link and say, is this you, you know, like that totally looks like a spam, right? The phishing email didn't even come from the correct email address, right? Yeah. Right. Where, yes, everything looks like it came from PayPal, but it's not, you know, it's not um, at PayPal.com. It's like something else. It's like, I, I don't know. Do people not do the due diligence? Are they not thinking about it? It's just like, I think the people think the world is so clean. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, 
you know, nowadays these, these reach outs are becoming a lot more tactical. And I mean, there's so many different apps that you can, you know, now with, um, you know, the ability to fake the likeness of someone's voice and the, right. their, their image. Yep. Right. Yep. So, you know, deep fakes started out in the, you know, the movie industry, you know, the entertainment industry, and it's that technology is being used, um, to do impersonation. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the context, context is really the only saving grace there where it's like, you know, someone might look like someone you, you trust. And on top of that, here's the other thing. Cyber criminals are definitely looking at your Instagram, your IG, your Twitter, you know, everything that, about you that's online in order to be able to understand who you are, right? So they can make advances and campaigns against you um, that are very, very targeted. So if they want to impersonate somebody and they want to introduce contextual pieces of a story that actually relates to something that you've been said or did, yeah. then you, you're, that context you know, detection system is basically going to get um, – maybe thrown off. So it's important to realize that in this day and age, that it's so many uh, easy ways to do um, impersonate somebody and to be able to, especially when it comes to like high profile types of transactions, like, you know, paying a vendor, like oftentimes corporate fraud, you know, they try to perpetrate the CFO at organizations and they talk to a controller or an accountant and says, Hey, I need to pay this vendor by the end of the week before we close our books. So 50000 out the door, here's the ABA information, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Go ahead and wire the money. That happens all the time. You know, tax season, like you mentioned before, you know, around March, April, there's a lot of impersonation to IRS, impersonation mm. of your accounting firms, this, that, and the other. So smart. So, you know, and then, you know, the holidays are coming up too. Yeah. And then also, you know, what's a sad one is when there is a travesty, like there's, you know, we talked um, – when you look at the things going on in the Ukraine, right, there's a lot of nonprofits and uh, philanthropic organizations that are trying to do something good. And then there's cyber criminals that are trying to perpetrate that cause and say, hey, you know what, um, maybe you, you know, tweeted about your desire to help out, right? Maybe your, your, your focus is on widows or orphans, you know, in the Ukraine or whatever, then someone can pick that up and scrape up a page you know, come up and with a seemingly story, even like fake a video, like yeah. propaganda video in order to bait you. And then next thing you know, you're, you're writing an altruistic check for five G's. I've seen that happen to people. So, I mean, cybersecurity really affects everybody. It's not just a business problem at the end of the day, you know, the governor of our own information is you and I, right? Everybody that's listening to this, you got to be able to make sure and understand, you know, what information you're putting down and do you really Need to put that down. Let me just talk about an example. I went down to Mexico, um, and I was with the fam, and I was kind of leaving the country, right? And so, obviously, you know, TSA border control—that's legit. You got to show the passport, you know. Um, but then there was a separate agency that was there. It's like, well, we need for you to put in this information, and everyone was like writing down their information on a card, you know, passport information or whatever. And I was oh, just that was me. I did. That. <laughs> I did that shit too. <laughs> and they're 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 going through the line and they're putting this information down. But I looked at the who they were giving the information to, and they weren't really scrutinizing it, doing any sort of validation. So I was like, why do I need to put in my real stuff? And especially the information for my kids. Yeah. So I was like, forget that. So, you know, again, you have to make the decision of like what information you're going to give up and what benefit is it giving you or a social service, right? That's going to, you know, help others. Um, obviously with border control, that's for, you know, uh, border security, making sure that, you know, you know, criminals are going over. So we want to make sure that everyone's given their information. But when it comes <laughs> to something that's right before that, and there is no logical need, I think the excuse was for COVID related reasons. Yeah. You know, but, um, you know, we have to be always to, uh, make that, you know, question, you know, what information do we want to give up of our children? of ourselves, you know, of our family members, because it's, uh, it could be leveraged in the wrong way. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned that I want to make sure like we, uh, we don't miss, um, is you said something along the lines of, you know, creating public accounts and to make sure, you know, to kind of be a little bit, you know, anonymous and stuff like that. How does that work when somebody is trying to develop a personal brand? Yeah. And tough. yeah, cause I, you know, they're, I, yeah, I just feel like it's hard, right? Like you want to be known, but at the same time, you're also making yourself a target. Um, so do you think there's a balance or what can personal brands do to, I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit, but, um, yeah, I think there's, there's things that you could do. I mean, there's definitely extremes. I mean, you know, so if you're already having a social footprint out there and you want to be able to have, you know, a, a level of following in order to promote your business, 
um, you, you just need to be able to, you know, separate, right, the things that are about you so that they're not related to the things that you really care about, like yeah. your bank information, your cold wallet, your hard wallet, um, your, you know, uh, tax information or whatever, sensitive information, things like that. So um, an example, you know, would be, you know, especially when you're forming businesses, you know, there's different levels of uh, business registration entity types that can help to protect the some level of anonymity. Even if you register a website, right, you know, you can have some level of anonymity in terms of who owns the website, right? Wherever you can, you know, uh, embrace some level of anonymity. Now, if it's going to work against you in terms of promoting yourself and your brand and your business, then, you know, there's even, you know, I thought about for, I think, a millisecond, because I'm not a big fan of TikTok, uh, <laughs> and not just because I'm old, but, you know, it's obviously taking off and there's a lot of followers, but, you know, understand the origins of TikTok, understands the company that owns TikTok and then the, the, the country that is, you know, obviously... Um, housing TikTok as an entity, yeah. um, there is, again, this goes back to monetization. You know, there's nation states and companies that want to monetize you. And let's define that for a second. What is you? Well, you is, yeah, your first name, last name, sure. Address, phone number. Okay, that's basic. Yep. But it's also how you look. It's also whether or not if you have a, you know, a liver spot on your forehead yep. or if basically you like, you know, fish tacos um, or, you know, whatever. I, your persona record, the more complete it is, the more attractive it is, right? It's more attractive for hackers, for business, because it helps to either perpetrate, it helps to either to market to you directly, it also helps to, you know, impersonate. So um, even your voice, if I record your voice, uh, and there's a lot of cyber criminals that are doing this today, they're trying to record, I remember even before deep fakes were, were coming about, the one of the things that we would do when we would do social engineering against an organization would be to you know, call the voicemails, you know, back when you didn't have as much, you know, everyone's on their cell phone, but you had like, you know, PBX switches, you know, corporate, you know, phone systems, whatever. Yeah. And you would call and you would listen to the voicemail and I would record their likeness, right? Or their voice. And so when I would call someone else to go and perpetrate the person I just listened to, I would practice a lot, right? Of how to do the intonation. So I might do a Bostonian accent, or I might do a New York accent, or I might do a Southern drawl accent. That's a great. Right? So, you know, and this is before the technology. Now the technology is, is that you just simply have to introduce a recording into the software, and then you can provide a script so that the script will actually go ahead and speak in the likeness of that recorded binary voice. So a lot of cool and scary things, but this is, you know, we think nefariously so that we can emulate criminal intent. And then... Right. We do these exercises against various types of healthcare, financial, government, retail, transportation, manufacturing organizations worldwide. We have about 400 clients worldwide yeah. where we've been doing this for about 15 years. So, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's not plateauing either. I mean, the uh, evolving landscape of attacks and technology just makes it so much more interesting. It's like a new dawn. Yeah. Have you ever had a rogue client? A rogue? Oh, sorry, net client. Rogue employee? No, not knock on wood, I haven't. So, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> All right, hopefully good, this good. is wood. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I know I know you have a book coming out, right? Yes. Well, so, I, it's, it's a second edition of, of an existing book, but yes. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about that because I'm very intrigued. Now, you know, having this conversation, I'm like, wow, like your, your, your job must be like it's always evolving and it must be exciting in a way. Mm -hmm. But I am pretty sure you guys deal with a lot of threats, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, hackers know that consulting firms are getting in bed with very large organizations. And even, you know, not too long ago when it was in the news that North Korea was reaching out to security researchers, security researchers are those that that, that word research in the cybersecurity community is kind of like very uh, used kind of uh, sporadically. But a true cybersecurity researcher is think of them as like a mad scientist yeah. inventing like the COVID-19 strain, okay, the actual strain that has no cure. Um, that's what a, a real cybersecurity uh, research uh, researcher does. They're finding an exploit that has no cure. There's no patch for it. Yeah. And so interested um, entities that want to buy that is a nation state, like Pakistan, North Korea, United States, yeah, you know, yeah. Russia, et cetera. So um, when it comes to like, um, you know, that – you know, the, 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 that type of market. And, you know, years ago when North Korea actually reached out to privately to one of our researchers on staff 
and you know trying to solicit crazy. exploits in and the payouts are enormous like if if i tell you that one exploit might fetch anywhere from like half a million to 2 million dollars and you know some some of these exploits are you know there there was a no uh no click exploit from a group out of israel that basically allowed you to send a text message to somebody and automatically hack their phone without even them having to click it right what? so these are the types of like zero day exploits that is highly attractive for nation states. But as a consulting firm, absolutely. I mean, we, we take a lot of um, preventive care to make sure that there's a philosophy in cybersecurity called need to know, right? We have different groups and if they don't need to know information, they don't know about it. Right. And we <laughs> make sure that it's a very much need to know type of uh, environment and everyone gets and respects that. So technologically, like, even if they were wanting to find out this, that, or the other with another group or the, with their, we take, you know, um, we definitely espouse that sort of philosophy very much. But, yeah, consulting firms out there are no stranger to advances from uh, solicitations from outside firms. You yeah. Know? So masquerading as, like, a staffing agency, you know, from the Baltic, uh, Baltic region or, you know, um, even an interested, you know, customer and things like that. So Yeah, yeah. Well, before I get into the book, I want to ask you one more question. What's probably the hardest vulnerability that you've, uh, you know, had to, you know, solve or have your entire team on or, you know? I think the hardest vulnerability that we've had to do was for a very popular software company in the Bay Area where they had um, uh, what's called a preloader. Basically, when you, when you uh, boot up your, your, your cell phone, there's a couple of things that are happening um, before the, you know, the OS is actually being fired up. And... Um, you know, we we did find some things related to that, but it's you know when the code base is so small, and the there's a lot of things related to the operating system of the of a mobile uh, device that it's pretty restrictive. That was that was pretty difficult, but very challenging and interesting. But outside of that, honestly, and I guess unfortunately for a lot of companies um, and you know consumers out there, we're pretty successful. I mean our Social engineering rates are like close to a hundred percent. Yeah, um, you know, there's some aspects where we're getting in and creating credentials on our own and stealing large volumes of information, exemplifying the theft. Right. right? And so, at the end of the day, companies really appreciate that, and they fix it, and that makes us feel better because that could be the information to our family members, neighbors, etc. Yeah. Right? So, in that aspect, is very gratifying, but. The, the sad reality is that it, that security is not a persistent state because there's going to be a new update to that code. Yeah. And then you have new turnover in software development. What happens if you add developers that are, you know, pretty reckless in terms of writing insecure code? Then they're going to basically regress that software application and to make it vulnerable again. So this is why it's not just simply a one and done. It's a reoccurring security hygiene exercise where, Companies that really, really, really care about data security, data privacy, um, overall product assurance of what they're offering, they're going to do this on a periodic basis. Yeah. Damn. Well, great insights. So talk to me about your book. Um, you said it's the second version to the original, yes, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and what is it about? So I co-authored this book with Marco Morana. Shout out to him. He's an Italian guy that was living in London. Um, we came up with this methodology in 2010 called PASTA, yep. Process for Attack Simulation and Threat Analysis. And it sounds all fancy, but it's really um, a risk-centric approach to modeling threats. So what that means is like, you could think about, you know, threats to a business. Like you go back to that small business entrepreneur that you asked me, you know, a while yeah. back. Um, you could go back to that individual and they want to know what are the threats that I need to know about right now? Yep. Cause it might be different when I blow up and now I have like a thousand employees underneath my belt. So are we have as individuals an individual threat model as companies, we have a, a corporate threat model uh, or organizational threat model and the applications have a threat model. So what we invented was a risk centric approach to threat modeling. We studied a lot of how threat modeling was done in the military with ballistic threat modeling and we took a an approach that says, what are the things that I really are non-negotiables? If I'm writing an application, building an application, what yeah. are my non-negotiables that I have to have in terms of security before I roll this thing out the door? Yeah. So um, the book is a beast. Um, it's like a 700-page Bible, but Holy it really crap. talked about um, 
threat modeling in general, and then it dove into our uh, methodology called PASTA, which is a risk-centric approach. Yeah, no, that's good. And so you're saying that it's it that book is mainly for the entrepreneur that has you know um, maybe not as much employees, right, where they don't have like a thousand employees, and they can start u- reading that, utilizing that to start you know ASAP, basically. Well, I mean, that book is really for everybody. It's for the student wanting to get into cybersecurity. If you, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are looking at this. It's like, I want to jump in. I want to jump in and get to cybersecurity because I want to play detective. I want to do forensic analysis. I want to do malware analysis. I want to do reverse engineering and all these other things that might not mean a lot of things to people listening. But um, it's basically, like I said, building a model of threats. And what's interesting, you know, kind of making an example of individual versus corporate security in the way, like, you know, my whole background, I'm first-generation American. My whole family is from Peru. Yeah. And in the 80s, there was this uh, terrorist group called the Shining Path. And the Shining Path was a cartel. And they wreaked havoc in the streets of Lima a lot. And there was kidnappings. There was uh, car bombs, all this type of stuff happening. Many people listening to this around the world might be living in a pretty hostile environment. So they, when they go out, they innately think, okay, what are the threats that I have to be worried about? Do I have to wor- be worried about kidnapping today? Right. Probably on the strip, you know, thankfully, a lot of people aren't having to worry about that. Yeah. But there's other types of scams that are going out there on the strip, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> so you got to be able to understand what is the threat model for you. Now, here's the unfortunate truth about corporate entities trying to secure their applications or products. You know what they're doing? They're doing what I call keeping up with the Joneses security. What that means is that they're looking across to see, well, if I'm, let's say, Wendy's, what is Burger King doing or what is my industry doing? And so they, they look at frameworks. They look at regulatory drivers that tell them this is what you need to do for security. And those leaders, they do that. But they don't introspectively look and say, what, let me understand my business first. Yeah. Right. And, and so like if you're – another example I use is like if you're John Cena, right, and you're walking out into, let's say, a, uh, a kind of a hostile street, but everyone just happens to be like four foot five. And they basically have, um, you know, just like they, they want to beat you down with, they want to try to rob your money, but they're going to do that with paper cuts. John Cena's probably not going to feel so threatened, right? So, but if you're, you know, um, someone maybe that, that you're going through a rough patch of a neighborhood and they have knives and, and firearms and stuff like oh, that, yeah. And you're unprepared, then you got to understand. Well, what am I carrying? Am I carrying something of value? You know, we do this almost innately if we go to you know international travel, you know, to you know Africa or to the Middle East or to Europe, you know, wherever, right? So we don't somehow do this. It doesn't really translate to um, corporations, and that's exactly why Marco and I developed this methodology called Pasta because we want to think like an attacker, right? Process for attack simulation. Yeah. So it's been really valuable. There's a lot of universities that reference it, MIT, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon. Um, Microsoft's GitLab actually just adopted it as their de facto threat modeling approach for their, like, uh, uh, for their developers, which yeah. is really cool. So, And the book itself, the prelude for the original one, it was endorsed by the cybersecurity czar of the White House under the Obama administration, uh, the, uh, the late uh, Howard Schmidt. Nice. So, um, when is this new book being released? New one's going to be out uh, in July, uh, June, July of yeah. next year. Um, going back to Wiley uh, Life Sciences in New York, they're the publisher. Yep. So um, they did the first edition. They they've been super supportive, and we're um, you know making the second one to be a lot less of a, a beast of like a three hundred fifty page, um, yeah, uh, short read. <laughs> and um, but in any case, it's going to have a lot more newer tidbits of how to apply threat modeling and more newer um, examples and, and things like that. Yeah, well, I think when it comes to information security, it's not something you should skimp out on, you know. So like, if 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 somebody's not willing to read seven hundred pages at three hundred fifty pages, then it's like, you know, you're kind of asking for it unless you like hire somebody to help you out, right? So, right. Because it's not something uh, it's not something like branding where you know, yeah, you can miss out on a couple of stuff. Yeah, I definitely think this is a lot more important. Yeah. Um, how does it affect your your personal life? Because I feel like, you know, from this conversation, a lot of it is you're solving a lot of threats and potential threats and, you know, preventing threats. And um, it's almost as if you're at war all the time. Um, does it affect your personal life? That's a great question. You know, in cybersecurity, it's kind of a dark uh, industry. You know, every time I interview individuals that are even in sales, marketing, some of the more, you know, happy-go-lucky you know, yep. type of uh, 
roles. It's, this is very much a dark industry. You know, don't get fooled by the suit. You know, I mean, um, there's um, it's tough because you're you're talking about like you know nefarious circles, nefarious thought thinking. Um, a lot of cyber criminals are you know um, you know obviously trying to do actions that you know are related to organized crime. You know, as it relates to human trafficking, as it relates to you know financial fraud. Um, there, there's there's pretty some dark circles there. So in the industry of cybersecurity, there's a lot of problems with you know mental health. There's also problems with a lot of substance abuse because you know it's it can be a very lonely dark art, right? You're you're always having to play detective. You're all you know. Also, you're you're trying if you're a hacker, you're kind of battling the application, right? And you're persistent, and it can be very frustrating. And that's all you do. So like you kind of like that's your world. Right. And you separate yourself. Yeah. Um, If you're a detective, like a forensic examiner, then, you know, you're you feel compelled to always, you know, try to find evidence, try to understand how a particular piece of malware got in. Who was the threat actor that put it into my network? Um, Where did they come from? What did they steal? Are they still here? Right. I mean, there's so many things. And then you have these leaders (laughs) of organizations called uh, CISOs, corporate um, chief information security officers. And. They, they don't sleep too well, you know? Yeah. So, but me personally, I, I actually sleep pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I sleep pretty good, but that's, that's for, you know, I, I got I have, you know, uh, definitely some key personal health habits that kind of help me to be healthy and grounded so I can just, you know, um, I, I do a lot of things that are useful so that I can get back into the ring and get abused. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. What happens after you find someone, you find the threat and you find the hacker, does it go straight to the police? Um, how does that look like? Interesting. You know, you asked that question because recently, I don't know if you saw, but there was a case with uh, you know the former CISO at uh, Uber, uh, Joe Sullivan, who was kind of being indicted for charges on um, misrepresentation of a of a hack that affected the Uber organization, right? The, the card ride ride sharing app, and so um, you know the issue around it was that there was a hack, yeah, and it wasn't reported, right? So, you know, there were some questionable actions that were done, but in general, yes. Like if you are the leader of an organization and you're responsible for uh, information security, it is your, you're basically an information steward. You have, you feel like responsible for all the millions of people that are giving you their information so that you can monetize it. Right. Right. Um, Because without that, you don't have a platform. So, you know, there is that level of accountability. And so, but typically when there is an incident, there is a hack, you work with local law enforcement, you might work with the Secret Service, um, you might work with State Bureau of Investigations, you might definitely work with the FBI. There's also different types of threat intel sharing groups per industry. Uh, every industry has one. There's one for IT, there's one for finance, there is different organizations that are looking at, you know, financial crimes. Um, so, you know, there's... It's important when you're running security for an organization to have those relationships. Now, if you're a, a small entrepreneur, there's no way there's yeah. no way you're going to be able to, you know, do all these things. That's why you have to rely on someone to run quarterback for you and your overall security posture. We literally meet with, you know, uh, tech startups who are like, okay, here's my secure security and regulatory concerns. Please take it and please make sure that I'm not on the news. Please, yeah. You know, keep us accountable and you know do the right thing for us. So that's one of the things that we do at Versprite. Yeah, I'm assuming that when you find somebody and you you know you you said it uh, very you know clearly where you're like, are they still here? Are they? I'm pretty sure they see the same thing, right? They see that they're they're getting shut out. Mm-hmm. Um, Who sees the same thing? What do you mean? Like the hacker? Yeah. Because I mean, obviously, right. when you guys are hired, you guys go in, yep. you find the threat. And then you're like, okay, you start asking yourself these questions, um, and one of them is like, okay, well, are they still here? Are they still hacking? You know, the company and things like that. Are they also noticing that they're being shut out? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what happens after that. <laughs> is it just like, uh, you know, your team against them, or like, how does that, how does that end up working out? Like, who ends up becoming the, the victor? I guess. So it, it's a lot of it's very similar to traditional crime. So you have really good, you know, um, let's say B&E artists that are breaking in, you know, grand theft, you know, uh, artists that are stealing like Tiffany jewelers or whatever. Um, and they, they're, they're, they're have sophisticated tools. They have sophisticated attack patterns. It's, and then there's copycats, right? There's a lot of 
thieves out there that are just copying what works for someone else. Yeah. And so in cybercrime, um, cyber criminals definitely, you know, there's definitely some innovative, um, you know, individual lone wolves that are super smart that they don't want the, um, the risk of someone ratting them out. So they kind of operate on their own or they're kind of like a hacker for hire. Yeah. And then you have nation states. Now those, if you have a nation state that's after, if you have a nation state that's after you, you know, they're going to uh, put any type of resources on you really quick. And then you have like hacker syndicates that are, you know, hacker groups for hire. So, you know, if they get in, typically a really, I would say an intermediate to uh, advanced hacker, they always want persistence. So even though you might kick them out, mm. they might leave some um, remnants of code or uh, software that runs that gets triggered by an event. Maybe it's time-based trigger that on a certain day, boom, it fires up. Yep. Right? And so it's laying dormant until a certain action within the network or the application or even just time-based but um, persistence, right? And, you know, speaking about a threat model that affects everybody, that's persistence. Just like you see, like, you know, uh, real estate squatting, you know, in different parts of the world. What is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, so you have the same thing with hackers. They, they're they not going to go to Amazon and be like, hey, you know what, I'm going to set up an account with you guys. No, they're just going to hack your existing accounts and then set up shop there. And they're going to do a lot of different things like you know, send out phishing campaigns from there. They're going to mine crypto. They're going to, you know, just uh, collect information about your business and sell it to other hackers, right? So um, it's, there's, there's persistence is super valuable and you can leverage that threat objective. But overall, criminals want to do what criminals want to do and that's to get away with crime. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So what does the next five years look like for you? I mean, you know, the next five years is really uh, just staying abreast of all the different changes and nuances. I think, you know, what's really exciting and some of the things that we've been working on with is around uh, EV vehicle market. You know, a lot of the cybersecurity issues related to EV charging, um, you know, the overall um, EV chargers with their interaction with the EV vehicle uh, cars. There's also, you know, futuristic uh, integrations with, um, you know, uh, uh, commerce plays or e-commerce plays, you know, entertainment, right? So, you know, when you go and, and you're in your vehicle, it's an office. It's it's an experience, right? And all of that experiences requires content and interfaces and data. So I think there's going to be just an evolution of autonomous, you know, flying, autonomous, um, obviously driving, autonomous tra- transportations, um, autonomous checkouts, right, for point-of-sale systems, you know, overall, what's next in the next five years is simply trying to stay ahead and think proactively as a nefarious, um, uh, you know, uh, hacking agency to be able to help our clients, you know, stay ahead and be proactive versus reactive. Yeah. Well, dude, you crushed this interview. Uh, where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm at T0NYUV as, uh, on Twitter. You can follow me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. I go by Tony UV. Um, yeah, so those are the two main areas. If you want to check out my book, you can just simply Google pasta threat modeling. I got a lot of different videos on that. I actually have a metaphorical video out there for those that want kind of uh, just to understand what is this really about. I kind of compare doing threat modeling with actually making pasta. So uh, it's pretty entertaining. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, dude. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Ulysses. Take care.